Hi, everyone, and welcome to today's Safety and Health webcast, OSHA Workplace Safety Inspections, Are You Prepared?, sponsored by J.J. Keller. My name is Kevin Drewley. I am an associate editor with Safety and Health Magazine, and I will be moderating today's session. Thanks for joining us. We hope you all are safe and well amid the evolving COVID-19 pandemic. In a few minutes, we'll start the presentation, but first I want to go over some preliminary items. The views of today's speakers and organizations are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the National Safety Council or Safety and Health Magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise, product, or publication does not mean the council or magazine endorses those items. At the end of today's webcast, we will conduct a question and answer session. To ask a question, simply type it in the text box in the lower left-hand corner of your screen and click the button for Submit Question. Feel free to ask your question at any time during the presentation. You don't have to wait for the question and answer session to begin. We'll try to answer as many questions as possible, but because of the large number of participants today, we might not get to every question. Any unanswered questions will be forwarded along to today's sponsor. For basic troubleshooting information, click the Help button located on your screen. At the end of the webcast, you will be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey. I will let you know more about that after the presentation. This webcast is archived, so you can access it after today's live event. To view this webcast and all of our past webcasts, go to safetyandhealthmagazine.com slash events. With that, let's go ahead and get started. Our speakers today will be Lisa Newberger and Travis Roden. Lisa is an EHS Associate Editor at J.J. Keller, specializing in workplace safety and environmental topics, and serves as lead editor for J.J. Keller's Environmental Alert Newsletter and the Comprehensive Environmental Compliance Manual. Travis has been an editor with J.J. Keller for more than 20 years, with a specialty in the areas of safety management and auditing. His previous experience includes working as a safety manager for a Midwest-based manufacturer of heavy-duty trucks and buses. Travis, whenever you're ready, go ahead and take it away. All right. Uh, thank you, Kevin, and uh, thanks, everyone, for joining us today uh, to talk about the OSHA inspection process. And um, as Kevin mentioned, obviously, we are uh, still in the midst of a, a pandemic right now, so things are, you know, a little bit different for businesses in terms of how how operations are working. Things are also a little bit different for OSHA in terms of how they're uh, going about their inspections and targeting um, and that sort of thing. So, you know, what we're going to talk about mostly today is is, is the general OSHA inspection process, um, which I think OSHA is getting back to. But just kind of keep in the back of your mind that, uh, you know, there are some nuances now with uh, OSHA's priorities, and that's just because of, of the pandemic. Once that uh, once that eases more, I think, then you'll see them getting back to more of, you know, the types of things that we're talking about today. But uh, we certainly will try to, you know, put in the current state of things as we go along as well. But just to give you an overview of uh, what to expect today, uh, we're going to look at specific areas that OSHA is targeting for enforcement so that you'll be able to have a feel for whether you might be at an increased risk for an inspection. And then we'll walk you through that inspection process uh, from start to finish. We'll, we'll look at some do's and don'ts as far as interacting with the inspector or the compliance, safety, and health officer, as they are formerly called. And we'll give you some information about your rights uh, both during and after uh, the inspections. And importantly, we'll talk about what you can do to prepare your company and your employees for the inspection should one ever occur. Uh, doing that 
you know, ahead of time certainly can help the inspection go a lot more uh, smoothly. So as you probably know, OSHA does not target everyone for um, an inspection. They just don't have enough resources to do that. So there are companies who, you know, will go for decades without ever ever being inspected. But there's always, you know, the possibility uh, that that it could happen. So the way the way that OSHA does their prioritization is, um, you know, they look a lot at, at risk uh, as well as um, you know current state of state of affairs. Like for for now with COVID-19, obviously when there is a complaint related to COVID-19 um, that might um, take priority over uh, a scheduled programmed inspection, for example. So, you know, it's a little bit different depending on, you know, what's going on in a different region, um, in a different part of the country and that sort of thing. But uh, in general, the boxes on the left are the most likely reasons that OSHA OSHA would learn of something dangerous, and and then they will put that as the first priority. And later we'll talk about uh, reporting serious injuries to OSHA. Um, for the last several years, employers have been required to report the work-related hospitalization of one or more uh, workers, also reporting amputations as well as loss of an eye and uh, fatality. And that's a little bit of a change from what we had uh, the years prior to that. So with that reporting, OSHA has had much more opportunities to learn of serious injuries very shortly after uh, they've happened. So that uh, has led to um, a different way of, of conducting inspections. Of course, complaints may lead to inspections or OSHA may follow up from prior inspections. A lot of times they get referrals from other agencies uh, like the DOT, uh, EPA, local building inspectors, um, sometimes the general public. Uh, the point is OSHA ju just does not randomly pick workplaces to inspect. Um, other inspections are programmed, meaning OSHA decides to focus on a particular issue or a particular industry. Um, you'll see these under things like local emphasis programs, national emphasis programs, as well as the site-specific targeting program, or SST. A few years ago, more than half of inspections were programmed. But uh, after that change in the severe injury reporting rule that we talked about with hospitalizations and amputations, more than half of inspections are now unprogrammed, meaning they're in response to a specific um, activity or a specific incident or something of that nature. So currently there are several national emphasis programs focusing on a variety of issues, on you, uh, for example, combustible dust, trenching, uh, excavations, those have been around for quite a while. Uh, and what you'll see with those national emphasis programs usually are ones that continue to be problematic uh, year in and year out, like trenching, excavation, and construction, fall protection and construction. Um, for whatever reason, those those uh, hazards seem to always uh, crop up. So OSHA has a special emphasis program related to those and about eight other topics. 
They also have 140 regional or local emphasis programs. And those can range any anything from focus on forklifts to, you know, if you're in uh, an area where fishing, commercial fishing is a big deal, Alaska or somewhere like that, uh, there's, you know, there may be an emphasis on something of, that's re region related, ge geographical. The most comprehensive uh, targeting program is called the site-specific targeting program. And that targets workplaces that have the highest injury and illness rates. And while OSHA doesn't release those rates, usually we're talking four to five times higher than the national average. So um, what they do going forward with this program, it's just been revived in the past couple of years. They're now using the injury data that employers electronically submit each year um, as part of their selection process. So if you're in that pool, that's required to submit your injury uh, and illness summaries, your Form 300A, electronically to OSHA, they're now putting a subset of that uh, data into this site-specific targeting program, and uh, they'll take that and target for a wall-to-wall -wall inspection. So, you know, usually we're probably looking at anywhere from, you know, 2,000 to 3,000 inspections per year, typically, under that program. So take a look at this slide. Uh, these are most of the reasons that uh, might bring OSHA to your door. Um, and now we want to talk about reporting severe injuries and illnesses to OSHA because uh, that obviously impacts your odds of being inspected. And I'll turn it over to Lisa to uh, get us started with that. All right, thanks, Travis. So as Travis had mentioned, uh, before 2015, um, the types of incidents uh, that you had to report included three or more employees that were hospitalized for a work-related injury or illness. Now, after 2015, you have to call or submit online when just one employee is hospitalized. Now, hopefully that you've never had that happen to you. Uh, but you may have had one employee go to the hospital. And because that happens more often, you're more likely to have to call or otherwise report an incident. Now, note that just going to the hospital, um, say going to the emergency room for something like stitches, OSHA does not consider that a hospitalization. That's considered outpatient care. So reporting is only required for inpatient care in a hospital for care or treatments, that, that formal uh, inpatient care. So uh, you have 24 hours to make that report. Um, and for a death, um, that is a work-related death, you have eight hours. I should also note that you should check your state reporting requirements because many states have uh, some tweaks that they make to these reporting times. Uh, for instance, California does not have the 30-day uh, limit on reporting a death. And so uh, you have, if, if the death occurs more than 30 days after the work-related incident, um, then you do not have to report it. But like I was just saying, in California, um, you may still have to report that. Uh, with hospitalizations, amputation, or the loss of an eye, if that occurs more than 24 hours after the work-related incident, um, then you do not have to report those either. So 
So those are your reporting times for that. Now, the rule changed how OSHA inspections are prioritized. So, you know, if you have more than one, if you have one employee hospitalized, you're going to end up talking to OSHA. So now that doesn't mean you're going to get an inspection, but you might. And at the least, you're going to have to explain to OSHA what happened and what corrective action you're going to be taking. Now, OSHA puts these reports into three categories. The highest category, of course, fatalities. Then come hospitalizations, amputations, imminent danger to employees, and then hazards related to emphasis programs. Now, generally, those things will trigger an on-site inspection. The next category, that includes things such as injuries to temporary workers, um, referrals from those other agencies, and VPP sites. So in this category, OSHA officers are encouraged to conduct an inspection. And then the final category, that's the rapid response investigation category. That's actually conducted over the phone. These investigations will discuss an incident and then they'll go over steps that employers have to take. OSHA follows up with a letter to the employer if more information is needed. Right now, approximately 45% of serious injury reports are resulting in an on-site inspection. So the rest of those are resulting in that rapid response phone inquiry. So if you need to report a serious injury to OSHA, you're going to have to provide the information shown here on this slide. So that includes the name of the employee, and that may include information about the next of kin if there was a fatality. It includes the location, the time of the event, how it happened, um, so be prepared to describe how the injury occurred, uh, and so on. You'll also want to report what you've done to temporarily correct the hazards and what actions you're taking to permanently correct the hazard to prevent any future injuries. If you don't have all of the information that OSHA requests, they're going to require you to call back after you've gathered that information. Note, OSHA is going to call you within a day to explain whether you have to conduct an incident investigation on your own. If you don't get that call, it's more than likely OSHA is go going to come to your site to do a full inspection. So be ready when they do this. The point of communicating with OSHA is to prove that you've done a root cause analysis and you're planning to address the hazard. So here's a good tip. During the call, be very careful about saying the injury was the worker's fault. You want to show that you've gotten to the root cause of the problem and that you've taken action to correct it. Now, we know that if an injury occurred, it's possible the employee did something wrong, but OSHA you know, expects you to have procedures and safeguards in place. Uh, for example, if an employee had an amputation, why didn't the machine guard prevent it? Or if an employee lost an eye, why wasn't the employee wearing eye protection? Blaming the employee for bypassing guards or failing to wear PPE can be kind of a, a simple thing to do, but as the employer, OSHA says you have responsibilities in those areas as well. And if you simply blame the employee for the injury, note that OSHA will document that statement and it could be used against you during the inspection. 
And with that, I'm going to turn things back over to Travis. All right. Thank you, Lisa. So we're going to shift gears just a little bit now and talk about what happens when OSHA knocks on your door. It's a dreaded knock that nobody nobody wants, but it's really not that bad if you're if you're prepared for it. So the list of questions shown here on the screen uh, probably come to mind when you start thinking about an inspector showing up. Um, other issues might involve the scope of the inspection. Um, whether it could be expanded if OSHA is there for one reason, can they then all of a sudden, you know, decide to go inspect something else? So over the next few slides, we'll, we'll pro we're going to provide you with more information on these types of issues and uh, help you prepare for and, and get through an inspection. So the first thing uh, that the uh, inspector or compliance officer will do is ask to see uh, the owner or safety and health manager, um, and then the inspector will show their credentials. If this isn't done, definitely as an employer, uh, you do want to ask that they show their credentials. There certainly have been stories of people pretending to be from OSHA, particularly for smaller businesses, and um, you know going in and trying to uh, to get money and that sort of thing. So you definitely have a right to see those credentials and in fact OSHA encourages you to do just that. Uh, you can't make a copy of their credentials, but you uh, you can and it is recommended to call the uh, local OSHA office for verification. So you can always do that as well. You should also ask for time to get the necessary personnel available. Now OSHA has in their policy that they will allow up to an hour for you to do this. So you don't have to start the inspection, you know, immediately if the right people are not available. And that is if you can get them, you know, within an hour, get them there. Uh, typically, you'd want your safety director, uh, maintenance personnel, supervisors, and if applicable, a union uh, representation. But if it's a fatality or a serious injury investigation that has prompted um, OSHA's presence, it's probably a good idea to have legal representation as well as members of upper management, either as part of the investigation or certainly aware um, that the investigation is happening and, uh, and on call for questions. So many companies, the, big, the biggest question, they want to know, do we have to let OSHA in? And the answer is yes, but you can um, ask for a warrant. Now, if you do that, you certainly be aware that the inspection might be a bit more aggressive once the inspector comes back with a warrant. So you do, as an employer, have that right of refusal. You can say, if you're going to do the inspection, I want you to go uh, get a warrant. But keep in mind that um, a warrant that OSHA gets is much different than a warrant that, say, a criminal warrant. This is more of an administrative type warrant. It's very, very easy and quick for OSHA to get. So, you know, it's not really that much of an obstacle for them. So most employers that I've encountered, um, unless there's some really unusual circumstances, uh, do not force the inspector to go the route of getting a warrant. OSHA inspections can take as little as 20 minutes to as much as six months or longer. It really depends on the reason for the inspection, 
size of the facility, the type of the business, and certainly the, the complexity and, and number of hazards involved. But regardless of you know why OSHA is there or what type of inspection it is, it will begin with an opening concert, and that's where OSHA explains why they're there. Uh, they're they're going to you know if it's a partial inspection, they're going to explain okay you were you were selected because we're doing a programmed in uh, a national a local emphasis program on powered industrial vehicles and your industry typically has a lot of them. Or it may be it's a complaint that has prompted the inspection. If, if that's the case, uh, OSHA will tell you about that. They should give you copies of the complaint minus uh, names of the employee who made the complaint. Um, then you'll have a facility walk around as well as a closing conference. So during the opening conference, that's again where the inspector is going to explain why they're there, what they're going to cover, and so on. Um, we mentioned that if it's a complaint, OSHA won't tell you the name of the person who complained. And that's really important as an employer not to ask that because, number one, you can't, you really don't even want to know because if anything happens with that employee, whether it's unrelated personnel action or whatever, there's always the risk that it's going to look like retaliation for the person filing a complaint. And as you probably know, filing a complaint with OSHA is a protected activity, uh, which puts the person in essentially a whistleblower status. So, you know, you definitely don't want to uh, retaliate against anyone for, uh, for filing a complaint. And uh, one way that you can save that off is by not knowing uh, who the person is to begin with. So OSHA is not going to tell you the name of the person. So that's one thing. Uh, the other part of the opening conference, ask how long the inspection is going to take. Uh, you, you really need to know kind of what you're dealing with. If it's going to be a week-long affair, then certainly, you know, it's best for you to start planning right away because, you know, whatever your title may be, if you're a safety professional, HR professional who happens to be handling safety, a manager, you've obviously got, you know, your regular duties that, that, that are going to have to get done. So um, you need to start thinking about that and need some idea of what's going on. And lastly, as far as the opening conference, uh, be polite. Inspectors are most like, uh, you know, like most other people. Some of them are easy to deal with. Some of them are not. Um, some of them are very experienced. Some of them may be relatively new. But it's important as an employer that you remain polite. But do remember that it is a serious matter. So you don't want to get too comfortable um, and say things that, that, that might come back to bite you because the inspector is there. Uh, to do their job, and um, while they may be friendly at times, uh, that certainly doesn't mean they're they're going to cut you a break uh, when it comes to uh, you know violations and that sort of thing. And keep in mind when we talk about what to expect from an inspection, not all of them are the same. Uh, some employers ask whether OSHA can show up at any time. Uh, normally, they do show up during business hours. And by that, we mean OSHA's weekday business hours. The only time OSHA would show up outside business hours is if there is a fatality 
or multiple hospitalization event. Even on a weekend, if there's a fatality, it could be very likely that OSHA will show up um, at the accident site. So, but run-of-the-mill inspections are, are, are during the week, uh, usually during business hours. That is something to keep in mind if you run more than one shift or if your facility is open on weekends. If there is a fatality reported uh, or something serious, OSHA might show up um, while emergency response personnel like police or fire and rescue are still there. Uh, once the site is cleared, uh, OSHA can conduct the inspection right away and you won't actually have the opening conference probably until uh, maybe the next business day. All right, thanks, Travis. Let's talk about after the opening conference, and that's when OSHA is going to conduct a records review. This includes usually three to five years of your injury and illness logs, uh, any written programs that may apply to the inspection, PPE hazard assessment, uh, and your training records. Now, keep in mind, you do need to keep written certification that PPE hazard assessments were done, uh, and a missing certification is a common violation. Also, keep in mind that no matter what brings OSHA to your facility, the inspector will likely want to see your HAZCOM program and your lockout-tagout program. Of course, that's if you're required to have those. Now, here's another tip. Don't volunteer records that the inspector didn't ask for. Unless it's something you know can really, really help you, um, but otherwise, you may be opening up a can of worms there. Um, so just be careful when you're volunteering those. So proactively managing your record keeping and, and having the right programs and plans in place is essential if OSHA knocks on your door. Uh, with the J.J. Keller Safety Management Suite, you can easily assess risk and performance across your organization. You can pinpoint problem areas using a variety of pre-built inspection checklists and create custom written safety plans. Since today's event is sponsored by J.J. Keller Safety Management Suite, we are offering all attendees a no-cost, no-obligation trial uh, to this brand-new innovative tool. We want you to see for yourself how easy it is to develop, enhance, and maintain a full-service safety program. All right, thanks, Travis. Please use the poll, everyone, on your screen to select your interest. In addition to your trial, we'll send you a copy of our white paper, OSHA Inspections, Are You Prepared? This white paper highlights the inspections process to ensure that you'll be ready if OSHA comes knocking. Well, thank both of you. Um, as, you're, as you're posing this question to our audience, Travis, we'd like to pose a question to you, and it comes from our question and answer box, which again, a reminder, anytime during the presentation, you can submit a question just by clicking the tab at the lower left excuse me, corner of your screen. But again, Travis, here's a question. Um, do you have basic guidance for replying to OSHA complaints guidance that would help prevent the complaint from becoming an inspection? Uh, yeah, you know, when it comes to complaints, I think the, the, the first thing that employers should do 
is have an internal mechanism uh, for, for employees to submit um, safety suggestions or complaints. So that's, you know, that's one of the bigger things is if, you know, if workers have no outlet internally or the outlet that, that they utilize internally, you know, never gets addressed, maybe the company never checks. They have a safety suggestion box, but it's never, never checked or it's never acted on. Or, you know, maybe the company thought the complaint really wasn't valid, you know, but they never responded back to the worker. Um, you know, a lot of those types of things or, you know, supervisors are not approachable by workers. Um, all of those are the types of things that might lead an employee to, you know, bypass the company and go to OSHA with the complaint. Um, now, that's not to say that you're going to ever be able to, you know, 100%, you know, keep your employees from, you know, there are going to be those that will file a complaint regardless of, of what mechanism you have in place at work. But, um, but yeah, a lot of it comes down to, I think, um, the better you have employees participate in your safety program, the better they feel their voice is heard and addressed internally. That usually um, can, can go a long way to keeping, you know, there's no need for them to, to, to call OSHA if the company is, um, you know, really, really, listening and, and proactively asking them for their opinions. So surveys, suggestion boxes, training, that sort of thing. Um, those are what, you know, come to mind right now as far as ways to help, uh, at least help minimize the number of complaints that you may, you may have to OSHA. Okay, with that, let's start talking about what happens during the facility walkthrough, the actual inspection process. So during the walkthrough, the compliance officer is going to look around your facility, going to interview employees, take photos, maybe collect air samples, depending on the kind of, uh, of inspection they're doing, uh, perform noise monitoring, maybe other measurements, again, depending on, on the reason for that inspection. Now, we often get asked whether OSHA can look at all portions of a workplace. So that also depends on the reason OSHA is there. For complaints, OSHA may stick to the area where the issue is alleged to be. Uh, in some cases, OSHA will focus solely on a specific issue, something like hexavalent chromium or silica. And then they may only look at the relevant areas there. But if they're there for something like an amputation emphasis inspection program, well, then the officer has the right to look at all the machines that can create amputation hazards, and that can cover a lot in a workplace. Uh, also keep in mind that, that OSHA does retain the right to expand the scope of the inspection if they see a hazard or a reason to do so. Now, on the other hand, uh, under the site-specific targeting program, OSHA will always conduct a wall-to-wall -wall inspection. So again, it really depends on the reason the inspector's there. Um, so because that inspection can be expanded when uh, an officer sees, uh, you know, a hazard maybe in plain sight, it's important that you don't let the inspector wander around your site unsupervised. And, you know, maybe the, the route to a particular area that the, the inspector wants to look at, maybe the, the route to get there is, say, outside of your facility instead of walking right through. 
So, you know, keep that in mind as you're doing the inspection. We also get asked a lot about employee interviews. OSHA does have the right to interview employees and in private. So you don't want to inter interfere with this process. Now, if OSHA interviews a manager, then you can have someone else present, but not for those general employee interviews. Also, when it comes to photographs, you want to take your own photo of whatever the OSHA inspector is taking. So inspectors will take measurements of machines. Um, so take, take pictures of those machines as well. And it's really a good idea to take your photos from multiple angles. You know, sometimes uh, one photo may show a worker closer to a fall hazard than another photo, or a guard opening may appear larger than it really is. So much like that opening conference, don't admit to violations. Um, it's, it's okay to correct hazards on the spot, and that may actually go a long way toward proving your good faith. Um, just don't admit to it or say out loud that it's a violation. So after your walk around, um, the next step will be a closing conference. And this is the time where you'll want to discuss uh, any problems that were noted and certainly ask any questions that you may have. Um, the, the OSHA compliance officer should con discuss the conditions that they observed um, and likely indicate any apparent violation. So they may not tell you 100% you're going to be cited, but uh, a lot of times you'll get a very strong indication um, that, that violations are likely coming or not. Um, and you'll, be in, you'll, you'll get information on how to contest the citations uh, and, and so on. But again, the compliance officer won't actually issue any citations at that time. If you, if you do get cited, those come later and it'll be in the mail. Also during this time, uh, this would be a good opportunity to produce uh, any records that maybe you couldn't find earlier uh, during, um, during the, the walk around or the records review. Uh, you know, if, if for, for whatever reason you just couldn't find it or you needed time to get it, Certainly now would be a good time to produce it if you have it. And, and just note that in some cases, more than one closing conference may be held, maybe because OSHA has to wait for, let's say they took some air sampling. They may have to wait until um, they get those results back in order to fully complete uh, their inspection. And the closing conference may not happen immediately after the walkthrough. The walk um, sometimes it's not uncommon for Inspections to go on for a few weeks. Um, you know, the the officer will do the walk around, um, but they may leave, decide they needed more information. They may send you an email or call you and say, "Hey, uh, I remember this machine. Can you give me, you know, some some detail about it or some training record or something of that nature?" So it can go it can go back and forth for a little while. At that closing conference, though, make sure the compliance officer knows where the citation should be sent. The last thing you want is for uh, these things to get lost in the mail, because as you'll see as we go along here, you've got a very short time frame for determining if you're going to contest the violation or not. And uh, if, if the thing gets sitting on someone's desk who's, a, who's gone, gone on vacation, you could very easily lose that, uh, lose that time. Hey Travis, I have so a after the violation. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry. 
I was just going to tell you, I had a funny story about that. I was talking to a friend of mine who's a safety manager out in California, and uh, they did get a citation in the mail that no one uh, routed up to the right safety people. It just kind of sat there, uh, you know, in, in the mail bin for a few weeks. And so that uh, violation actually did go through. No one had a chance to contest it. No one even actually knew it was happening. So you want to train your people to, to be watching for those things if you've had an inspection and make sure people know if something comes from OSHA, it gets routed to the safety person right away. Absolutely, it, it does happen more 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 often than you, than you might think it would. Um, that just for whatever reason, you know, the person who handles the mail gone on vacation, it gets covered up, and the next thing you know, your 15 day window's passed. But um, yeah, good advice there. So if violations have been noted, this is a key thing, and I think it's a couple of questions we've gotten from from the audience today, OSHA has six months to send you uh, citations, and that's from the time they noted the violation. So keep that in mind. Once six months has passed, you're, you're in the clear. Uh, statutorily, OSHA is prohibited from issuing a, a citation after that time period. Usually, you will get them much quicker. Uh, the average from what we've seen is around 50 to 80 days from the opening conference. Um, and when you get that citation package, it basically will inform you of the regulations that were alleged to be violated, the type of violation, which means was it a serious violation, a repeated violation, willful violation, as well as a proposed deadline to correct the hazards. And that's, they'll call that the abatement date. Um, be sure to post a copy of each citation. You'll do that at or near the place the violation occurred. And you do that for three days or until the violation is corrected, whichever is longer. And that is required even if you contest the violation. If you can't post the citation near the violation, then you have to post it in a prominent place, um, like a cafeteria bulletin board where all affected employees would see it. Now, if you get that citation, you have a few options for how you can proceed. First, you can agree to the citation penalties and correct the conditions and pay the penalty. That obviously is the, 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 the quickest approach. Second, you can contest the citation, the proposed penalty, the abatement date, or all of them, all three of those, any or all of them. But usually what you want to do before deciding on either of those options, you can request an informal conference with the OSHA area director. And at that point, you can discuss any issues related to the citation and notice of penalty. Talked to a lot of clients over the years, been involved in quite a few of these. Uh, never known of the OSHA having an, an informal conference where you ended up being worse off. You know, <clears throat> worst case scenario, everything stays the same. But most often, uh, if you take the informal conference, it usually works to your benefit in terms of either getting a, a break in terms of the penalty amount, or in some cases, getting the citation bust completely because you've ex you were able to explain to the director, you know, why it wasn't a violation and, you know, 
that sort of thing. So it's it's almost always a good idea to take advantage of that. It's 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 built in. You know, OSHA has no choice but to to accommodate you. So um, you definitely want to do that if you get cited. But remember, you only have 15 working days to notify OSHA if you do uh, plan to contest. And scheduling that informal conference does not change that 15 working day window. So that's 15 working days from receiving the citation. So the clock really does start ticking once you once you receive that in certified mail. But if you do take advantage of that informal conference, it's it's a great time to ask for a better explanation of the violations. Understand, you know, what are those just saying? Why are they saying you're in violation? Maybe you don't quite understand what the regulation is asking or the way OSHA is interpreting the regulation. It's also a time that you can ask to extend the abatement date. Maybe you agree that, you know, it's something that you need to fix, but you know you can't fix it in the next two weeks. It's going to cost too much or you don't have the, the, the right personnel in place yet. So the opening conference, the informal conference is great for covering all of that types of thing. But to hopefully lower the cost of your citation, what you can do and what we found helpful is to bring any documentation that you have abated the hazards or that you've provided training, photos of any of the corrections you made since the inspection, and so on. And what this does is shows good faith effort to you know, comply with standards and abate the hazards, and you may be able to lessen a violation type. For example, you might be able to get a what OSHA is calling a repeated violation lowered to a serious violation if you can show them that, hey, look, this is not the same as what when you said, you know, when we were recited three years ago, uh, it was not for this same thing. We 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 really took that seriously and we, we tried to fix it and this is this is something different that cropped up a different way. And it's you know it's a difference of thirteen thousand versus one hundred and thirty thousand uh, dollars in terms of repeated versus serious. So it's a you know it's a big deal. But the key is to all of this: make sure you bring something to the table. I mean, the bare minimum you have to do is abate the hazard, assuming you're not going to contest. So just simply doing that is not going to get you very far with OSHA. Considering, you know, if you can consider offering something above and beyond what just simply abating the hazard, like, you know, if you bring in a third-party consultant for training or auditing, uh, let's say, you know, you had an issue with personal protective equipment, well, you've solved the problem. Not only uh, you don't even have to worry about PPE anymore because you've implemented an engineering control that takes PPE out of the equation. So if you can do something like that, that shows you're really making a change. Uh, that's where you you generally get the most uh, the most bang for your buck with these informal conferences. So basically, though, show OSHA what actions you took to correct the hazards. And again, remember, this informal conference does not extend your 15 working days to to, to contest. Uh, if you miss that deadline, the citations revert back to the original penalties, and generally will become. Uh, final. There's not much you can do once that 15 working day period um, expires. But if you do choose to contest, the company has to submit a written notice of intent uh, within 15 working days, again, after you receive the citation. 
And this applies even if your company verbally stated um, disagreement. So, you know, if you're at the informal conference or during the closing conference and you say, no, 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 we don't, we don't, we're not buying that. That's not a citation. That's not a valid citation. Here's why. It doesn't count unless it's written. So it has, you have to file the written notice. And second, that notice has to clearly state what is being contested, whether it's the citation, the penalty amount, the abatement date, or any combination. And it must indicate whether all of the violations on the citation or just specific ones are being contested. Uh, for example, you, would, you might word it something like, I wish to contest the citation and penalty proposed for items three and four of the citation number you know, so-and-so issued on July 1st, 2019, or, or whatever the case may be. So be as specific as possible. And the good thing about the, the contest process is once you do it in writing and within the required time period, OSHA doesn't get to, you know, sit around and decide whether or not it's valid. If you, I mean, if you submit it in writing and you're within the 15 working days, it automatically then becomes in contest. So OSHA has to forward it to the Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission or OSHARIC or a state equivalent if it's in a state plan state. And then the commission will assign the case to basically to an administrative law judge who will schedule a hearing. And that hearing will, you know, work pretty much like a, a typical trial that you've seen. There'll be examination, cross-examination of witnesses, and so on. Um, you can choose to have legal representation. You don't have to, but it's, uh, you know, it can be good to, particularly if it's, um, you know, if it's a big, a big issue that, uh, you know, a huge dollar amount, or you think it's something that uh, could come back to bite you in terms of if you lose this case, you're going to have to change your operations in a significant way. And at that point, the judge can either affirm, modify, or eliminate any of the contested items. So they may say, yep, we affirm it as a serious, we affirm the penalty amount, um, and so on. Or they might say, we affirm it as a serious, but we're modifying the penalty amount down to you know, X dollars. Or they could say, we are abating it completely. We don't believe this was a violation. We're siding with the company, and they can they can toss it out. Either which way it goes, um, as with other legal procedures, there is an appeals process. Any party may request a review before the full review commission. So it starts out with one judge, and then if it's appealed, it goes to the full review commission, and then that commission's ruling, in turn, can be appealed to a court of appeals, and then eventually up to the Supreme Court. Uh, very seldom does that happen, but uh, there have been a few cases that have made it that far. Again, when considering all of this, definitely consult closely with your you know, legal counsel because of the time and costs that are you know, associated. It certainly can be significant if you take something all the way up to the you know, Court of Appeals. Lisa? So um, if you're unable to meet an abatement date, 
because of uncontrollable events or uh, other circumstances, you can file what's called a petition for modification of abatement. And you do that with the OSHA area director. And again, that must be in writing. And you'll submit that uh, no later than one working day after the abatement date. And uh, the good thing about, you know, what we're talking about here, it's kind of complicated in a way. But when you get your citation package, it lays out the steps for you. So you don't have to remember 15 working days. You don't have to remember, you know, all these form names and, and that sort of thing. We're giving you an idea so that you can kind of, you know, prepare for it and plan for it. But uh, this will all be in the citation package uh, that you would receive. And with that, we'll shift over here to preparing uh, for your um, for your inspection. I'll turn that over to Lisa. All right, thanks, Travis. So we've covered what could possibly lead to an inspection, what the inspection will consist of, and how the citation process works. So let's look uh, about, how, about how you can minimize your chances of being cited. You may never see an OSHA inspector, um, but it is better to be prepared for an inspection than to take your chances that OSHA is never going to come knocking. So good preparation for you includes developing a good safety and health program, getting and staying compliant with OSHA regulations, having a good training program for your employees on OSHA required topics, identifying hazards, and maintaining records. The best way to do that is by aggressively and proactively managing safety. And you can do that in a variety of ways. And uh, many of those ways are listed on your screen right now. And we'll discuss uh, each of those points in the next few slides. Now, it's a good idea to plan ahead for inspections. So you want to know how to proceed. You want to know your rights. And then decide ahead of time how you want to handle issues. What image do you want to portray to the OSHA inspector? So think about things such as, who is the OSHA officer most likely to encounter when he or she first arrives at your site? Is it your front desk person or your security staff? So do these folks know who to contact? And then what happens next? Is there a plan to get everyone that needs to be involved to a designated area? So these are the types of things you need to think about ahead of time. And then there's documentation. Can you get to what the inspector is going to ask for. Um, you can set a really good tone if you produce accurate information as soon as possible. Now, after you develop your plan, you need to train your team. And training should include uh, the, the person's role in the inspection and whether they should answer questions or if they should refer questions to a certain team member. Maybe you want the questions routed up to you. How should they answer questions? So, you know, offer training on not offering too much information or inadvertently agreeing that a violation took place. Think about the importance of, of taking those pictures that we, as we've talked about and from those multiple angles. Again, never admit to a violation, but correct hazardous conditions as soon as you can. And then stress that importance of listening and taking notes during the, important, the opening conference, um, also during the walk-around and during the closing conference. 
think about doing mock interviews. So you can bring in a third party to do these. You could have another one of your sites uh, bring a team over to uh, do a mock inspection. Um, have interview your employees as though you were an OSHA inspector. The more you do these mock inspections, the more people become more confident and more comfortable with the idea of having an OSHA inspection. So develop your plan and train your team and then practice, practice, practice. So, you know, keeping that nervous chatter to a minimum, that can, again, really be helped if you do those mock inspections. Now, it's obviously critical to keep track of regulatory changes. We talked about the change to your injury reporting requirements earlier, but there are other changes. Uh, there's the silica rules and construction, the, the walking working surfaces requirements. And uh, so it's, it's really important to keep on top of those changing rules. There are always new interpretations and new guidance coming out. So our team monitors those things daily for any new guidance or regulations. So you might want to just think about, you know, every day checking in, seeing if something has changed. And of course, during this COVID-19 time, lots and lots of new OSHA information out there, new interim enforcement guidance on many, many COVID-19 topics right now. So something you, you want to be on top of. And then be aware of OSHA enforcement programs. So those are issues that are often tied to serious dangers with widespread impact that OSHA wants to, to focus on at the time. Developing and implementing a safety and health program offers you a lot of benefits. Most important benefit is, of course, reducing injuries and illnesses. OSHA says businesses spend $170 billion a year on costs associated with occupational injuries and illnesses. And that comes straight out of company profits. But workplaces that establish a safety and health program can reduce their injury and illness costs by up to 40%, and they can reduce their likelihood of being inspected. So if you haven't done so already, establish a written injury and illness prevention program that outlines the hazards in your facility and what you're doing to control them. And that, that's called a find it and fix it way to reduce hazards before OSHA finds them. And it's also a requirement if you want a good faith penalty reduction if OSHA cites you. Now, California actually requires you to have that IITP, Injury and Illness Prevention Program, in place. Um, and it is something that federal OSHA is looking at maybe sometime in the future. Common elements of a good safety and health program are shown here on this slide. And you can make sure your programs and plans are tailored to your employees and your specific operations. Ensuring employees are trained, that's another huge part of surviving an OSHA inspection. So remember, OSHA inspectors can interview your employees, and they can ask the employees if they understand the safety rules. To be effective, your training has to be presented in a language that your workers understand, and that's really a, a big emphasis right now for OSHA. So it may mean bringing in an outside trainer, or it could mean using one of your non-English speaking workers to assist you with your training. If your employees can't answer questions about their training, OSHA can cite you for lack of training. That's even if you provided documentation that your employees attended a training. So, with that, I'm gonna turn things back over to Travis. Yeah, thank you, Lisa. 
So any preparation must include, obviously, a plan for identifying and correcting hazards. So you want to correct them before OSHA gets there, obviously. So um, things like safety walkthroughs, self-inspection, um, those sort of things are great. And if you don't have that expertise in-house, certainly bringing in a third party, even on a, even occasionally just to get a fresh set of eyes, is always a good is always a good idea and can help you uh, catch hazards before OSHA does. And then when it comes to records, um, that's one of the first things an OSHA compliance officer is going to look at during an inspection is a review of your records. Uh, they'll look at three to five years of injury records um, or injury illness records. They're going to look at training records, inspection records, um, and that written plans. So definitely make sure you have all of those in order and that you can get those to the inspector in a timely manner. Uh, again, that just shows that you're organized and that you've got things ready. Kind of sets the tone for the rest of the inspection if you can if you can do that. And don't be afraid to ask for time. We mentioned that earlier. OSHA will give you generally at least an hour uh, to get your necessary personnel available. So you know, don't feel like you have to rush or begin right away. So the more you can plan for that type of thing, uh, the more comfortable you'll be uh, when you actually do do get an inspection. So just to recap what we covered today, um, first we provided some background to help you evaluate your chances of being inspected. Uh, there are certainly some things you can do to keep yourself off of some of OSHA's inspection lists. Second, um, if your company is inspected, remember there is a reason for the inspection, and hopefully you gain some insight into what you need to do now to make sure that when OSHA does show up, that process will go, go smoothly. We also talked about preparing for the inspection in terms of training, self-audits, uh, and that sort of thing. Uh, also, if you missed the opportunity or joined us late, we are offering complimentary trials to J.J. Keller's Safety Management Suite. As safety professionals, we know you're pressed for time, yet you want to go above and beyond what's required by the regulation. From training to record keeping to audits, J.J. Keller has the resources to help you do just that. So use the poll on your screen and let us know your interests and along with your uh, complimentary trial, we'll also send you a copy of our OSHA inspections white paper. I think with that, we can uh, look at some questions that came in. We have a little bit of time left. Yeah, yeah, we surely do know. Thank you both, Lisa and Travis. Great job. Thanks for your insights and expertise. We do have a little time for Q&A, and before we start it, just want to remind everyone of the evaluation survey that we're asking you to complete. The survey should be appearing on your screen now. We really appreciate your input because it will help us improve future webcasts. If you do not see the evaluation survey on your screen, please turn off your pop-up blocker. You may also access the survey by clicking the survey button near the lower right part of your screen. And with that, again, we will get to have time for maybe a question or two. Uh, this one is for Lisa. Lisa, could you clarify the criteria for reporting incidents involving hospitalizations? 
both for an injury and including COVID-19, is the hospitalization only reportable if it occurs within 24 hours of the incident? Okay, very, very good question. So first, um, we've gotten quite a few questions actually about COVID-19. So I do want to um, let everyone know that COVID-19 is not something that um, is eligible for an exception to record keeping or reporting. So OSHA says COVID-19 can be work-related and reportable. It's reportable if the incident, uh, the hospitalization or a death um, occurred because of a work-related case of COVID-19. Well, how do you determine COVID-19 is, is work-related? OSHA says to look at events or exposures in the workplace to see if it's more likely than not that the employee uh, was exposed to COVID-19 in the workplace. So is there a spread among employees going on that, that you're aware of? Are employees making you aware that something is going on? Um, or is it just, uh, you know, a single employee that's been exposed to a family member who developed COVID-19? So you really have to take all of those things into account. So if it's a work-related case of COVID-19 and the employee is hospitalized for it, then the question is, well, is that within that 24 hours of exposure? And that's, that's getting a little bit tricky uh, for reporting. So right now, we're kind of operating on the same principle as OSHA wants you to report work-related cases uh, that are heart attacks, or OSHA wants you to report heart attacks um, for hospitalization or a, 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 work a death of a, a heart attack. Um, and then OSHA makes that determination so we're kind of going off that same sort of principle that if uh, an employee is hospitalized because of COVID-19, you'd want to report it, and then OSHA will help you make that determination at that point, but you've done your reporting within the required 24-hour time frame of that hospitalization. So hopefully I answered that question. Yeah, and just, uh, I could just jump in on that too. The, uh, the loan citation thus far that OSHA has issued related to COVID-19 was for failure, it was a record-keeping citation for failure um, of a nursing facility to, uh, to report a hospitalization, six of them actually. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out because as Lisa noted during the webcast, the time, from the time of the hospitalization, from the time of exposure, you only have to report within a 24-hour period. And um, it's kind of unusual with the COVID cases that, you know, the date of exposure, you'd be hospitalized within 24 hours. So it'll be, it'll be interesting to see if that gets contested or not or how that plays out. But um, so far, that is the lone citation related to COVID from a federal OSHA. Well, again, we thank you. Unfortunately, we have run, a time, run out of time today. I'm sorry that we didn't get to everyone's questions, but all of today's unanswered questions will be forwarded on to our sponsor. Um, once more, we do hope you take the time to fill out the evaluation survey on your screen and give us your feedback. Uh, with that, we end today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast. I'd like to thank Lisa Newberger, Travis Roden, everyone at J.J. Keller, and all of you who listened in. Thanks, and have a great and safe day. Mm -hmm.